Hey everyone! Thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Errol Kerr. Errol is a professional skier, a Winter Olympian, five times X Games competitor, and a four times Arctic Man competitor. So let's get into it. Errol, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. You bet. So let's jump right into it here and start with the very beginning. You were born in Brooklyn. Is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And started skiing at four? Okay, yeah. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Well, my father's Jamaican and my mother's American. And so my mom actually graduated Stanford and uh, she she ended up traveling the world for a while. She actually ran out of money in Jamaica, was hitchhiking on the side of the road. And uh, my dad picked her up. So that's how my mom and dad, long story short, you know, he already had three kids. She raised those kids. They stayed there on the island for another 10 years before they moved to New York. They finally got to New York. My dad was a carpenter. They, they bought a rundown city or a rundown building from the city. And he went through remodeling the different apartments and renting them out. And once that finally got settled, she finally got pregnant. And so I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And I moved from Brooklyn out to California with my grandparents when I was one. So I, I pretty much grew up in the Bay Area um, in California. And so that's where you started skiing. Yeah. So skiing comes from my mom's side of the family. So my mom's a fuller. So my, my great grandfather started the Fuller Paint Oil Company. And then my grandfather, he was actually president of the board at Sugar Bowl for about 10 years. So skiing was just something that that side of the family always did. So every weekend we'd go up to Lake Tahoe and go skiing. So that's how I got introduced to it. And, uh, by the time I was 10 years old, my mom and I moved up to Truckee. I was kind of showing potential in ski racing and uh, we chased that dream. So how, what was the journey like from a, from a little boy, just skiing with the family all the way to the U.S. ski team? Like that, that's pretty massive. A lot of kids go skiing. You know, that, that journey is, is so long, so it's not, it's not an abrupt shock. But I like to say you have to win at every level. So you know, first you're the best in your family. Then, you know, you're the best your local resort. And, and then, you know, you're the best regionally for your age group and then nationally. So, so that journey, that journey takes time, but, you know, by the time I was about 13 or 14 years old, I was in the top, you know, five, you know, top five juniors in the country. So that path was kind of already set. And it was just a matter of, you know, keeping dedicated and uh, doing the training and sticking down that road. Nice. But when you went to the Olympics, you skied for Jamaica. Yeah. So, so what had happened? So my, my father had diabetes and so he had passed away when I was 12. And so it always been a dream of mine to, you know, represent Jamaica and, and kind of, you know, something to, to put them on the map and in, in international skiing was, was my dream. And uh, so about, you know, a year before the, well, about 18 months before the Olympics, I was able to, you know, that year i I'd done well in the World Cup. I'd gotten a couple top tens. I'd gotten fifth place at X Games. And so I was able to get some big title sponsors, you know, like Spider, you know, a, a big mountain here locally. And, and so through that support, I was able to finally break away and represent Jamaica. So I only skied for Jamaica for one calendar year into the Olympics. So, but I could have, I, I, I wouldn't have ever been able to just do that from the get-go. I had to come through the U.S. ski team training pipeline. I wouldn't you know, unless my family was astronomically wealthy, I wouldn't have ever been able to have those sort of trading opportunities. But what an amazing legacy for your dad. 
Yeah, an amazing legacy for my dad. You know, it's still ninth place is still the highest finisher for a Caribbean athlete in the Winter Olympics. So, you know, and and I'm sitting back here. I want somebody to take that flag and run with it. You know, I'm not sitting here hoping no one's going to beat it. I hope that somebody picks up where I left off. You know, I, I don't see why we can't be on the top of the podium. You say the, the transition starts with, you know, being the best in your family. And I, I can certainly finally beat my little brother, but the Olympics was never, never going to be a reality for me. So for the rest of us, what's something that we would be surprised to learn about being an Olympic athlete? Well, I would say that, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise, but I mean, that's what your life is. You know, I was homeschooled through high school. I, you know, I didn't really have a strong social group outside of skiing. We were, you know, it was just other athletes that I was hanging out with and doing things. So, um, you know, it looks really glamorous out there when you're, when you're doing it, but you know, the years and years of preparation leading up to it is, you know, just so much dedication and giving up, you know, little fun things here on the side to have a, a bigger end goal in the future. A lot of discipline. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's something that, you know, cause when we, when we are in the Olympics or, or on TV at X games or stuff, I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. I don't think people realize how much, you know, how much we've just totally given up and, and not pursued other things. You know, I didn't play baseball. I didn't, you know, I played soccer a little bit, but you know, I didn't get to pursue those sports, you know, through high school or, or anything. Yeah. And, and you do do other summer sports, like you, you BMX and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I BMX, I also raced motocross when I was 14. I, I won a number one plate in ABA, which I don't, I think it's a different league now, but that was American bicycle association. Now I think it's NBL national bicycle leader. I haven't even kept up with it, but yeah. So I, I did do those other sports, you know, as far as, as long as they weren't like team sports that I had to, you know, have a commitment to. So when they're individual sports then I could really follow them and yeah, BMX scene was uh, definitely huge because a lot of the balance and, you know, training kind of crosses over between bicycling and skiing. You bet. Yeah. So you have skied all the disciplines, you know, GS, Super G, Combined, Ski Cross. Which one is your favorite? Do you have a favorite? I'd say downhill is definitely my favorite. I, I wanted to be a downhill racer. I, you know, it was kind of funny, you know, when I was 10, when I was about 10 years old, snowboarding started coming about and, you know, it was kind of the new cool thing to do. And so I actually started snowboarding a little bit and I ended up watching like a downhill race on TV that winter. I think it was Beaver Creek. And, uh, you know, I, I turned off the TV and, you know, watching somebody go 80 miles an hour in a, just a thin piece of spandex and, you know, jumping a hundred feet. I, I thought that was the coolest thing you could ever do on a pair of skis. So I turned off that TV and went and dusted off my race skis and never looked back. So anyways, long story short, yeah, I wanted to be a downhill racer and, you know, I, I raced Norams. Um, I've been top five in, in Norams, North American cup races. I've raced uh, Europa cup races and just never really made that jump to world cup. So, so that was kind of like, I was kind of, I'd say defeated, you know, it was kind of, that's towards the end of, you know, my amateur career there in Alpine racing and, you know, was on the U S development team and, and doing development programs and just wasn't really making that, that final little jump. And then the sport of ski cross came about and uh, went to my first ski cross race, qualified second, Darren Rawls qualified first. And uh, lo and behold, here I am, I'm fully funded and on my way to Europe with the U S ski team to go race world cup. So I got to go do it in a different discipline than I had trained for my whole life, but I was now doing it. Amazing. So when you're on the snow, like what, what is it that drives you? What do you personally get out of being out on the snow? 
Well, I think one, it's, it's been out in nature. I think we, at least for somebody for, for, um, like myself that hasn't, you know, fallen in love with, you know, a city or the urban environment to, to be out on the top of a ridge and feel the power of that wind in your face and you're just out in the element is one of the things that really draws me to it. The raw beauty, the opportunity I've gotten to travel and, and see the whole world in, in the most beautiful places. And two, when you're, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're skiing a, a really aggressive run or you're, you know, racing downhill or doing things, you know, it, it, it takes such, it's such focus. And, you know, for that little bit of time, you know, nothing else matters, you know, it doesn't matter if you left the heat on at your house or it doesn't matter, you know, all these other things in life that we get dragged down by for that moment when you're out there, they're gone. Yeah, no, I, I totally feel that with all the traveling that you've done. And I mean, you've been doing this for a while now. What do you think is one of the best days you've had on the snow? Oh, man, I would say the best day I've, I've had on the snow would definitely be, well, I mean, it'll be this Friday. I'll be back on the snow. So for me, I love it so much. I, I don't know. I also I also play. So like, for example, I, I put it into perspective, you know, so I'm a member at like their local golf course. I golfed 62 rounds this summer, right? So you play the same course, wow. you know, six, two different days. I never once got up there. I was not bored teeing off. And I think for me, it's the same way I could, I've grown up at the same ski resort and I've had an opportunity to go all around the world, but I think any day you, you click into your skis and you get off the top of that chairlift and slide to a stop and get to look through your tips and see the whole run below you. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are, that that's the best day you're doing it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> We've all had, I mean, there's definitely days that the top others and there's days that it rains, but as a whole, I mean, Every, every day is a, a beautiful experience for me. Nice. So congratulations on the cover. You're on the 2022 cover of the Ski Magazine Gear Guide. But, uh, and it's not your first photo shoot by a long shot, but this one was a little different. Yeah, this one was, was really different. You know, I, I mean, as we could see, we, we, you know, I mean, we can go to golf because golf is something I also do it. Or, or golf is another sport. And, you know, these were sports that, are, that I was introduced to through my grandparents, you know, which were, were, were well-to-do, you know, white people. And, you know, it's, I mean, as a whole, it, it's, it's, I mean, let's be honest, it's, it, it's hard to get out and go skiing. I mean, for a family of four to come out and go skiing nowadays, is going to be, you know, two to three thousand dollars just to come up for the weekend and do it. I mean, lift tickets now are two hundred and six dollars. You know, you're going to rent gear. You know, you get into a group lesson. I mean, you're almost. You know, you're at six seven hundred dollars a day. So, it's a uh, it's a hard sport to break into if you are not from an affluent family, and unfortunately that's what it is but you have to look at it too i mean ski lifts cost you know hundreds of millions of dollars to put in now mm -hmm. um there's there's other things to this but so i know that's a roundabout way to your question but so what was really interesting and and absolutely different about this ski shoot is as for me I've, i'm an athlete of color but you know like i've always said is once we put on the mask and put on our goggles you know when i get out there and go skiing i want to be remembered for how i skied not, not how I looked when I took off the helmet. I think once you put all those things on where, you know, the slate is wiped clean and it's, you know, he who is fastest wins. But what was really interesting about this ski shoot is for the first time, you know, again, I went to the Olympics, I represented Jamaica, I've, I've been around the world. And for the first time we had 
a, a person of color taking the pictures, a person of color editing and writing the article. So for the first time in the ski industry, we were able to come together and really show that we can not only do this, but we can make it look beautiful and do it just as good as anyone else. So, you know, I think you can look at that cover and no one is going to sit there and, and say that, you know, you know, wow, look, those guys just got it because, you know, we're trying to be inclusive here. You know, we came out there and we showed them that we are better or equal to anybody else who's going to go out there and do that. Absolutely. And it feels like the ski industry has sort of glommed on to this notion of representation. And, and, and that doesn't feel like it's enough, but you had that opportunity during that photo shoot to come together in community. And, and how, how did that feel different? I mean, so, so, you know, the two other athletes that I was there with, so there is an organization called NBS, which is National Brotherhood of Skiers. And I had an opportunity to work with them all the way up until, unfortunately, once I broke away from the U.S. ski team, I couldn't work with them going into the Olympics because they're the National Brotherhood of Skiers, not International Brotherhood of Skiers, which was really, really sad for me because, I mean, they were a huge, huge help and supportive in my ski racing career. So, you know, their whole goal, you know, of their organization and what their club dues go is to identify, you know, athletes or potential athletes of color and help them pursue, you know, their, their dreams in ski racing or snow sports. And, you know, it's been, it's been years. The organization was really strong when I was younger. I think now they're kind of in a rebuilding phase. You know, I would love to one day be back and a huge part of that. I think it is, I mean, it's huge. I mean, I'm part of the all season ski club, which is out of Oakland. And, you know, I thought it was really fun when I was, you know, I came from a little, little mountain town here. And we'd go down to our club meetings in Oakland and, you know, there I'd be the first time I was in the room surrounded by, you know, a hundred plus other black people that were all skiers and to, to stop there for a second and spin around, I thought was, was really, really exciting for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just not very often you look around and you see somebody that looks just like you. So I also think that that, you know, is also why I'm really excited about this magazine cover. I mean, I, I hope that there's is some, you know, young child who picks this up and, you know, sees the color of my skin and, and can identify with that. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it gives them, you know, instead of just seeing something cool, I hopefully it gives something that, you know, is more tangible for them, something they feel like they could reach out and touch and uh, could go pursue this. But it is also still a really cool cover. Yeah. <laughs> In her write-up about the cover, Sierra Schaefer, the editor-in-chief of Ski, called this cover an invitation to the party. And, and she tried to dispel some of the myths about who a skier is or what they look like or what socioeconomic background they come from. Did you, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it just goes back to, you know, everything that I'm saying is that once we get out there on the mountain and get all covered up, I personally feel like color goes away. And there, there is, I mean, unfortunately we can't rewrite history, right? Okay. All we can do is we can, we can be better moving forward. And, and these, these pre, you know, misconceptions of people or, or groups or things, you know, have to get broken down and this doesn't happen overnight. And, and this is, this is a huge step in, in breaking one of those barriers down. This is the first time in history that we have a, a colored person on an international skiing magazine. And, and that's part of breaking down those doors mm -hmm. and, you know, like not to toot the horn or anything, but 
you know, they have to get broken down, but you know, we also, I mean, I mean, it's hard when, when I, when I look around this town that I, I grew up in, in the mountain town here, I mean, there was, you know, two other kids of color by high school. So there isn't, you know, it's also, you know, what is it about these communities that, you know, why aren't we, why aren't people of color wanting to move to these communities? You know, what, what is it, you know, not just out on the hill, what is it, are we doing as a society to say that this beautiful mountain town is, is out of reach for you and you have to stay here in the, in the ghetto, you know, why do you have to stay here? Why can't you look, you know, way up here and, and aim for the top? And uh, I think it just takes time and I think we'll get there. Totally. And it, and it takes like vision of the goal too, right? Like for individuals who, it's not that they don't necessarily think it's for them. It's that they don't even know it's an option. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and that's another thing too, that is, is hard is, um, well, especially, you know, when you're in the ski industry, it's bigger than you are. And I thought, so after the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, I actually stopped skiing and I went and worked in the film industry. And so I became a camera operator and I, you know, shot tons and tons of commercial work and, you know, shot on some feature films. And it was, you know, it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience, got to travel the world and now behind the camera. And, and with all that, you know, had a great, great group of people that I was working with, you know, but now that I've been away, I stopped that in 2015. Now that I've been away from that for six years, if I went back to that, then, you know, I wouldn't exist, right? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'd get a job rolling up cords, but I came back to the ski industry and what I had done on skis was still so relevant. Like I was still present and still here and still could, could do something with the industry. And so, you know, it, the, the industry it, it is so small. It's like a microclimate and it's so hard to really tear apart, you know, say like in a microclimate, you know, do we have walls that are built up? Yes. Are they, are they coming down? Yes. But without something that is, is really drawing our mass population, it's really hard to, I think really, you know, push these things through and, and really, you know, see a huge change. Yeah. Yeah. We went through, I mean, globally, we went through a huge, we've gone through a huge change in the last 18 months and it's hard to look for silver linings with so much tragedy from the COVID-19 pandemic. But if you, if I had to pick one, it's been the huge uptick in folks, particularly folks in underrepresented groups who are getting out into the outdoors in new ways, looking for safe places to recreate, safe places to be outside. So in your mind, why skiing? Why should these folks try skiing? In my mind, why? Because, well, I think skiing's the closest you can get to flying. You know, you get at the top of the mountain and oh, whatever way you lean or point your head, you're going to go in that direction. So it's a, it's a totally new experience. Not only that, skiing is a lifestyle and it's a healthy lifestyle and it's an exciting one. And the people that you meet through skiing will be lifelong relationships. You know, once you've conquered a mountain together, you guys be friends together forever. It's, it's an amazing group to be part of. There's camaraderie, there's, you know, challenges that you guys have to tackle every day and there's more fun to be had than is measurable. Absolutely. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out, whether they've been out a few times or they're even, you know, they saw the cover of the magazine and thought, maybe I'd like to try. Advice I I would give, say, you know, keep your expectations. So skiing is something 
I feel very fortunate. I started getting pulled around on skis when I was, you know, two to three years old. So the learning curve for me was I learned how to walk. I learned how to ski. So, you know, the learning curve for skiing can be a little bit harder. One thing I would do is I would say, don't go to the nicest resort when you're starting. Find your local mountain. Skiing is accessible at small local mountains. We put these big world-renowned resorts in, in the front of skiing because they're beautiful to ski at. When you're just first starting, you don't have to go there and they're not that expensive, you know, and they have, they have good little, you know, you don't even have to buy your own equipment. They'll have your lease programs for you and things that you can get into. And then you can build your skill set at an affordable small level. And then once your skill set is built, then you can take that to a bigger mountain and, uh, and enjoy it. Yeah. I like that. I like the progression. What about those who do want to take it to the next level? People who, you know, the recreational skiers, young folk, and they're thinking, you know what, maybe I might want to take a go at this. What, what advice would you have for them? Like as far as racing or we just want to, yeah. I mean, the, 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 again, I'd say join your local ski club joining, you know, if you have kids that you think that have potential is to, to put them in a local program. Once they're there with the other kids, they're going to make friends. And then that's where it really starts, you know, ballooning, ballooning out from there is you're going to have friends that do good. And then you're going to want to do better than them. And then you guys are just pushing each other along until you really, really improve your school uh, skill set and make it to the top. So I'd say definitely, you know, it's great to skew your family for a little bit, but if you really want to get better, you have to get into a program where you start pushing yourself. Yeah. So you have been for a long time, an ambassador at your home hill at Palisades Tahoe. And while you're there, you have talked a lot about the promotion of fun over podiums. Why? Why? I think for me, because um, winning is absolutely everything, of course, right? We can't take anything away from winning. But at the end of the day, what I really take away is joy. You know, I can, I can win. There's only so many, there's only so many races you can win. And there's every day you can walk away with joy. So to get to go there and see the joy in people's faces, to get a rise out of them, that's that's just as worthwhile to me as winning. Palisades is a new name. What are your thoughts on the recent name change? The, my thoughts on the recent name change. Um, the one thing that one thing that is constant in life is change. So that is constant for me. I grew up at this mountain. I have taken it to the Olympics. I have done so much. So it's. I'm not against the name change at all. It's hard for me. I accidentally say the wrong name all the time. And even it's just going to take a while to get used to a new name. Yeah. I don't know. You've just like known something as one thing for your whole life. Again, uh, like, yeah, it, the only thing for me is just like figuring out how to say the new name after something's rolled off of your tongue for so many years. I think it's, I think it's great. I think, I think it's important for us. Like I said, our history, like, I mean, our history is belittled with getting things dead wrong. So to go back and try to, you know, I can't say, I'm not saying that we need to go back and rewrite history books, but if we can go back and, and put things back in a line where we can, I think it's a great step forward. I agree. Do you, do you think this is an indicator of a larger cultural shift within the industry? Over yes, absolutely. And, and again, I think this industry is like a microclimate. It's, it's so small that I think there's other industries that that shift that have a huge impact and really make things better. You know, this 
has this has to happen, but this I don't know if this is a huge impact as it is. I mean, some people take this this matter so passionately. I mean, for me, it's the mountain hasn't changed. It's still the mountain that I ski on forever. You know, the Olympics, the Olympics were there. So, you know, is it is it hard to say, you know, who's going to remember where the Olympics were now? You know, like, is it hard to, after so many years, to identify a mountain, you know, with the Olympics? And now it's it's not, you know, it was, yeah. I, I always thought that it was going to be Olympic Valley because that's, that's the name of the town. <laughs> <laughs> So again, I had no, I have, that's, that's above me. I don't, I don't have anything to do with the name changes, but <laughs> so that's where we're at. It's Palisades Tahoe and just have to learn how to say a new name. Yeah. Just be, be flexible and roll with it. Do you think it's, do you think it's creating or do you think it's catalyzing any sort of cultural shift within the community? Like right there where you are? Again, I mean, I would say that I wouldn't be able to answer that question for you because the 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 community that I grew up in is totally different than the community is the community that I grew up in, you know, it was, you know, for example, you know, my mom and I moved into this house. It was a $200,000 house, you know, and right now it's a $1.1 million house. So the community I grew up in was, you know, the tail end of a little working mountain town. And now this is a destination vacation town. So the people that are here is, you know, it's, it's, it's probably upwards of 70% second homes or, or maybe even more. So it's really hard for me to tell you what the town's like. I mean, the town is, the town's changing, the town's evolving. And if you, if you took me away from the first five years of living here and dropped me off today, I would have, wouldn't recognize the place <laughs> or anyone. That's got to be difficult to have a community shift out from underneath you. Yeah, but again, it's again the one thing that's constant is change. So you just have to embrace it. I mean, we have a new rec center. We have, you know, newer things. Things are getting built. Things are getting better. It's it's brought a lot of a lot of money into the region, and we'll just see. I mean, you know, again, like lift operators can't afford to live here in this town. You know, you can't you can't work at the resort and live here. So you have to commute out of Reno, which is like a 45 minute commute up here. So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I'll get back to you. Let's do this in 15 years and I'll let you know how it works. Done. I'm penciling that down right now. Yeah. And, and in 15 years, I will have a, yeah, I'll have a really good grip on uh, what's going on. It must sort of stem the pace of change though, when there's changes that you want to make, when the community is not really part of the community, when it's second homeowners when it's people who aren't there full-time and don't have that full-time investment in the town? Um, again, I mean, I can't speak for, for everyone here, so I, I have nothing to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, it's different. <laughs> All I'm saying is that it's just, it's less successful than it was. It was, a, it was a fun mountain town to grow up in, and now your parents would be millionaires if you grew up here. So it'd be a different town to, to grow up in. Shifting gears... You spoke fairly openly about the benefit of sport for mental health, and it's been a topical conversation in sport recently with, you know, things like what happened with Naomi Osaka, what happened with Simon Biles speaking out on the issue. Why do you think sport can be beneficial to mental health? Well, I think it's, um, I think it's like a, a double-edged sword. It's like the, the same thing that can get you so focused in such, you know, 
in a direction like when I'm out there ski racing, I mean, there's nothing else that I mean, you learn how to completely channel and, and tunnel into, into into one into one little hole to become the best at one little thing. And um, and so, you know, so that's what, you know, so you learn how to train your mind to like this uptainth point. And then you kind of, you know, you forget about all these other things that you need, you know, after after you're done with that sort of, you know, extreme challenge that you need that, that your, your mind needs, you know, a, a full body, a full, a full realm of things. You can't just stay focused, you know, on this, like, I can't eat avocados all day, every day. I'm, I'm going to eventually have a problem, even though as an athlete, avocados are really healthy for me. So yeah. So yeah, some mental health and then, you know, it's dealing with the highs and the lows, you know, you, you come off of a, when you're, when you're competing, you know, you're on, on such a high. And then again, once everything's done, you know, everyone's gone and the phone stops ringing and, and dealing with those lows, you know, when you, when you come back and you're not winning, it's a, uh, it's a hard crush. And, and given that, you know, there's highs and lows, why was it important for you to come to speak about these things? Why did you want to bring it up? Because, because there's such a stigma about it to come out and say that you have mental health problems. You know, if you went back 10 years, you know, you're blacklisted, you know, you don't get to do anything again in your life. And mental health, I think is something that, you know, we struggle with as society on a whole. And so I think that if I can come out and say it, then that there's got to be somebody else out there that, you know, you know, cause they say the higher, the, the higher the monkey climbs, the more he's exposed. So if I come out and say it, then maybe it'll give hope to somebody else that, you know, needs help or, or needs somebody to talk to. And we'll give them the willpower to come out and say something about it because, you know, they'll be like, well, look at him. He's an Olympian and he can have the same problem. So if he's that great and still suffers from the same thing I do, why can't I come out and talk about it? Absolutely. And there seems to be this, this false division that science doesn't believe in and between physical health and mental health and science just looks at the human body as a whole system. So it makes sense that, you know, when you're paying attention to your physical health, you have to pay as much attention to your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, there's things that I've learned now that I wish that somebody would have told me, you know, years and years ago, if I had had this sort of education or even understood these things were real, then I would have had the tools and coping tools and ways to deal with it, that none of these problems would have ever become what they were. So is that why you want to try to normalize some of these conversations so people don't stumble over the same things that you maybe stumbled over? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have, I have bipolar, bipolar too. And, and these are things that, I mean, I can go on for the rest of my life and, and, and never have, you know, never have issues with it or, you know, if something's, you know, multiple external stressors all come together at once, it's a big problem that I have to get managed and get under control. And, and if, if somebody else could, you know, see these early warning signs and get the help that they needed, then they would never have to go through any problems. Speaking out on mental health, and you said it yourself, like there's still a stigma, no matter how much we try to break it down and, and try to, you know, I think there's way more of a stigma over mental health than there is a racial divide in scheme. Do you? Hugely. Talk more about that. Like I feel less comfortable talking about my mental health in a ski situation than I would ever to talk about like racial diversity. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like there is more of a stigma put on mental health than there is put on a racial divide. 
That's interesting. That's a really interesting introspection. I think speaking out about mental health is courageous no matter what environment you're in. And I think that it's a difficult thing to do. Do you think that it's more difficult for people of color? Well, yeah, I think so. Because I mean, I think if you go back, we're always, you know, the, the dumb, tough ones. So yeah, I would say it's it's harder. And again, like I said, I do it for, for the people that, you know, I've, I've done so much that I can come out and, you know, express what I'm, what I'm going through, what I'm dealing with and, and battle right back to the top. And I want to come out for the person that never made it anywhere is going through these things and, and, and give them the, the hope. I mean, I mean, there's days when you, when you wake up and, and you're going through these, these things where, I mean, it's, it's hard to get up and eat breakfast. You know, it's hard to get dressed. It's hard to get out of bed. And I want to tell that person that, I mean, <laughs> there's another day. I mean, here I am. I'm on the cover of Scheme Magazine. I have a, a great job, great people around me, um, working with great companies. And I'm my, my best days are yet to come. And I've gone down a dark road of, of, of mental health issues. And I have I've worked through them. I've dealt with them and learned how to manage them. And I want to come out with a person that is in that ongoing struggle right now and give them that hope that there, there is your, your brightest days you have to come. I mean, here we go. I'm, I'm paving them right now. So it's just hard we're in that hole to believe it. That's amazing. And such a great you know, sort of role model role to step in, in addition to all the other role model roles you're already in as an Olympian, as an ambassador, as a brand ambassador. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's sad. There's like, you have, I mean, I think there was a documentary just done. I think I watched it. I forget the name of it, but I mean, it, it follows, there's, you know, some freestyle skiers. You have people that have like meddled in the Olympics or, or at least have been on the U S ski team and have committed suicide. And, uh, and these are all things just struggling and fighting through mental health issues. And I think, you know, these people would still be with us here today if this was a subject that we could openly talk about. Yeah. You, know? you talked a lot about sport as a catalyst for other things in the past, and you've had a ton of opportunities. And like you said, spending time behind the camera, are, is that still something that you're passionate about, even though you're not doing it professionally? Yeah. I was just talking with my friend about that the other day. I, I could see, yeah, I'm still passionate about it. I don't, I don't have any camera gear right now. I can see myself getting back into that eventually. Right now I'm, I do excavation in the summer. So dig with tractors and in the winter I work with Palisades Tahoe. So those are the things that I have. And those are, I mean, two things that I really enjoy doing, love doing. Again, I, you know, start early. So I finish by three o'clock and still have time to go play golf afterwards. So that's how I get in so many days of golf in the summer. So right now I'm doing all the things that I love and enjoy. And uh, yeah, I could see myself getting back into filming. And again, once, you know, once you've, you know, become an elite athlete and can put in that sort of training and dedication, Again, whatever else you want to do in life, once you apply about 40% of what you used to to it, you're going to make it. So yeah, now it's just kind of choosing what you, what you love to do. Because you already have like the, the pattern of the structure and the discipline. Yeah. I mean, I, I never understood how people couldn't show up on time every day at seven in the morning, you know, <laughs> I don't know, because skiing, you'd be on the hill at six. 40 every, you know, you had to be, you only got to train for those, you know, two hours before the mountain opens, didn't get to sleep in. So yeah, just applying that sort of drive to a daily thing or to anything else or 
you know, going through your gear after the end of the day, you know, making sure everything's charged and cleaned and ready for the next day. You know, that's part of skiing. You come home and you tune your skis and, and prepare them all for the next day. And I think other people, you know, you know, clock out and throw all their stuff in a heap and, you know, aren't ready to hit the ground running first thing in the morning. I love that you said that, you know, what you're doing right now gives you joy. You found a place or a, a way to make space for joy in your life on the golf course, on the ski hill. What lessons would you, would you give back to the next generation right now who are starting to think about, you know, what does life look like when I grow up? As a ski racer or as a human? As a human who wants to keep joy in their life. Oh, make sure you don't get too consumed by work. Um, I, I made that, I made that mistake after, you know, after I was done skiing is I would, I became a workaholic. I would, you know, I would work 14 hours a day. It didn't matter. It was just like training, you know, when you're training for the Olympics, it doesn't matter how bad you hurt, you're still going, you know, so you learn how to push your body to places where it's not healthy to go. And so, I mean, we're not here for very long. So make sure that you work as hard as you can, but also set aside time for the things you enjoy and make sure that you do them. Make sure you make sure the hob, make sure you have a hobby one and make sure number two, that you pursue it because that's what really brings joy into your life. And uh, then it makes, then it, you know, it doesn't really, you know, I'll get done with a, a week of work and I will have worked 40 hours that week, but I also golfed every day afterwards. I spent, you know, another four hours on the golf course. So at the end of the week, it doesn't really feel like I worked 40 hours. Yeah. Find something you love, or at least gives you space. Yeah. And you know, people do that, people do this all different ways. People go to the gym and I'm not saying, you know, there's not, there's not one, one flavor here fits all. It's just uh, find the things that you love and make sure you make time for them. So, I mean, you've reached the pinnacle of the sport, which means you've talked to literally every level of media in terms of interviews and everything else. What is one question that you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you? Hmm. No one's ever asked me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I can't say there's any questions that I haven't been asked yet that I didn't want to answer. I don't know. That, okay. That's well, probably that question. Yeah. I don't know. What does Errol want to do when he grows up? <laughs> <laughs> What does Errol want to do when he grows up? <laughs> Nothing, because he's never going to grow up. No, yeah, no, I've never, no, there, I wouldn't say that there's anything. And yeah, the other thing too is I would, I would highly recommend it to other people as they're going along is, you know, it's important to have long-term goals, but at any point in the road, you have to give up who you are for what you may become. And, you know, after the Olympics, that road was kind of ending and I didn't hang on to it. And I got to move right over into this film world and, and make a whole thing. And as that came over, you know, came to an end, I was able to, you know, move into construction. I actually, you know, I'm a certified structural welder. So I did that and then into excavation. And so I wouldn't say there's one thing that I have my heart set on. And I think some people get really tracked down uh, a one lane road and opportunity is always, always around the corner and to really be willing and open to those opportunities and not to get locked into what you believe is for you. And, and to, there's not just, uh, you know, there's more than, there's more than one way to do this. And so, you know, people make molds and we are supposed to do things one way, but to, 
always be open and ready and willing to accept change and opportunity as they arise. I like it. You have been in the ski industry since you were four, which is amazing. And you've reached the pinnacle of the sport. You're now, you know, in a leadership role, a mentorship role. You've been all over the place within the sport. Talking back to the ski industry, what advice or what changes would you like to see in the ski industry to create more space for equity of access? To create more space, I think we need to do like in the ski industry, we need to like, we need to do things like where your town, you know, so you have some sort of youth program that, you know, you can put your kids in for an affordable rate that they get bus to the ski hill, you know, two or three times a week and they get to go skiing. And, you know, that was something where the NBS did, they would bus kids from Oakland up here on ski trips, you know, a couple of weekends a year during the year. And if we could put together programs like that, then you would have accessibility for these youth in, you know, in neighborhoods where they'd never get an opportunity to, they have something they could sign up for and, and get to go on this trip or get to go on a ski trip, you know, even if we do it, you know, five weekends a year or something. And I think that's something that as a ski industry as a whole, you know, because we have enough wealthy people to do it that we could come together and, and create these sort of funds that there could be a learn to ski program for, you know, not underprivileged, but for people that don't have reach to it. And, you know, it'd be a small dip in our pockets to create a accessibility and even avenue to introduce more people of color to the sport. So addressing the barriers of economics and proximity. Yeah. Which are two of the three that the SIA identified last year in their report. Mm. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's not accessible. But yeah, if we could make it accessible at some level, because then once you have that sort of access, then we could build on, you know, once there's access to it, you would essentially start to create its own sort of pipeline of how we could build off of that. But first, we have to get the accessibility so people can even be interested in it. You know, it's right now for most of these people, it's like talking about going to the moon. You know, I mean, great. Some people have stepped on it, but how am I ever going to get there? You know? Yeah, for sure. What's what's next for you? What's on the bucket list other than skiing this Friday? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, that'll be followed by skiing this Saturday. Oh, after, well, that'll be skiing this Sunday. Next on the bucket list, hopefully we have a big winner to be working more with Palisades Tahoe. I'm doing, I do a great program with them right now. So you can come, if you come ski with Carol for the day, we get to cut the lift line. So I could take up to five guests. We don't wait in the lift lines and I get to go give you a tour of the mountain. I grew up I and mean, that'll be any, any day of the week we can book that. So that's what I'm doing this winter. Continue to work with Marker Vocal and Del Bello. So that was great. We got a pair of vocal skis on the cover of Ski Magazine. They're an awesome, incredible company to work with. I go to their trade fairs and, you know, demo days and stuff and help promote the product and share my love for skiing. And yeah, way out. I don't, what's on my bucket list? I, I would say that, I don't know. I filled up a passport. I've added more pages to it. I've had an amazing opportunity to go around the world. And right now is just uh, a little bit of me time for a couple of years and then we'll, we'll be on it. There's, there's nothing, nothing's really knocking on the door. So I don't know way out in the future, but right now more of the same. Nice. Where do our listeners find you? Where do they follow you? Where do they reach out if they want to come ski with you for the day? Well, you can always follow me on Instagram. So I believe my Instagram's handle is just Carol. So more than welcome to follow me on Instagram. I do my best to try to post pictures of 
exciting things. You can also follow me on Facebook. And uh, if you want to book me for a day of skiing at Squaw Valley, uh, that's through the ski school. So you go to the ski school and request uh, Errol Kerr and we can do a day of skiing that way. Amazing. And listeners, all of those links will be in the show notes. Errol, thank you so much for joining me. This was really fun. <laughs> thank you. It was, a, it was a pleasure being on and I hope we brought some insight into, into some things. And yeah, like I said, we just have to create opportunities for people to, to try out this sport. And that's how we do it. And then people will love the outdoors and we'll, we'll create some ripples here. And, you know, it's like a snowball. Once we get it rolling, it just gets bigger. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And that is it for another episode. Thank you everyone for listening and all of your support this season. Links on where to find Errol are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope this conversation was as inspiring for you as it was for me. And if it was, don't hesitate to smash the like button. We're going to be taking a bit of a break here, but I can't wait to see you all again at BIPOC Outside.